to uh, Matthew. Th- we're in Matthew three. Uh, Going to look at verses seven through ten. We've skimmed over these uh, these lines uh, before, and I want to go back and kind of serve as somewhat of a review, but also to uh, to look at them in a little more detail. Um, one of the things that comes up here, and it's an extremely important aspect of the entire revelation of Scripture, is the kingdom of heaven slash kingdom of God. They're uh, one and the same, uh, and that meaning that term, that phrase, kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, are going to be pretty much the same thing. Some think they're a little bit different, but... Um, and that kingdom is the only everlasting kingdom. That's the title of today's message. That, and the fact that it's the only everlasting one should tell us something about the other kingdoms, of which there have been tons, you know, all over and throughout history. And even though we live in a, a republic uh, here in America, basically it would be viewed by God as a kingdom uh, in which it is a nation that is sovereign. And God likens the kingdom to, first off, and he has many images for a kingdom, meaning that in the revelation of Scripture, the kingdom is going to be seen as, uh, and in our case, it's a tree. And so as a tree, uh, God sees the the kingdom as something that he has built, uh, and it is a kingdom, a kingdom is a tree that should bear fruit. And if the kingdom doesn't bear fruit, well, then it's going to eventually come under God's judgment. And they all have uh, up to this point. And they will continue to be. Uh, <clears throat> but also the individual is seen as a tree. So we have a kingdom like Israel, like Babylon, or, or any of them are seen as a tree that should bear fruit. And also an individual person is seen as a tree that should bear fruit. Now, whether it's a vine or a fig tree or an oak or a cedar of Lebanon, it's very common in Scripture, cedar of Lebanon, uh, that doesn't matter. What matters is, is that it is something that is, uh, has a foundation and it is to bear fruit. We find out that the the individual and the kingdom are one in the same. In other words, how God views you in your individual soul is very similar to the way he views a kingdom. And a kingdom is to bear fruit, and we are to bear fruit. And as the scripture will tell us that if we don't, then God is going to cut, cut it down. Whatever doesn't bear fruit gets cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, we don't necessarily mean the lake of fire there. But anyway, speed up my intro. Proverbs 16:32 says, "He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures the city." See, he who rules his spirit is better than one who captures the city. In Proverbs 25:28, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. So God sees us as, in our own souls, our ability to control those souls, to worship him with those souls, to bear fruit from those souls is much like a city. And God, in fact, says that if you can control your own soul, you're mightier than one who can capture a city. So we ask God, how do we gain control? 
And then God gives us an answer that at times frustrates us and sometimes confuses us. He says that you don't have control and you never will. But I have control. I will give you control. And, of course, this turns out to be something that we have to either go by faith and find out or not. And by faith, if we give over, defer is the word I'm going to use today, If we defer to God, his wealth, his power, his influence, then he says, I'll give you control. And in fact, and we find out that this is absolutely true. And the examples of it in scripture are many. And that's what we're going to look at today. How do we gain control? And we'll see those who don't have control, but yet try to gain it. And, uh, and then it's a great lesson for us. It all starts with John in Matthew chapter 3. So let's open up in prayer. Let's thank God for the time we have together to, uh, <clears throat> to see his word, to see him in his word and see ourselves in the great plan that he has given us. Uh, and so with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for the time we have to study it. Thank you for the revelation that comes through your spirit that is in your word. And by that means that we can learn how to live as unto you. And learning unto you is living under the ways, the auspices, the uh, abilities that come from your kingdom. The kingdom of heaven has come in the, time, in the form of Christ And though it does not exist here on earth, Father, you have given us the way of the kingdom, the life of the kingdom, even though the earth has not a anywhere has your kingdom in it. But we are in union with the one who sits at your right hand, the King of kings and Lord of lords. May we, Father, uh, gain through him uh, insight into what you would reveal to us through your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So in Matthew 1 through 3, um, actually the intro to Matthew is in 1 through 4, and after the Lord's, in chapter 4, after the Lord's temptations in the wilderness, then he begins his ministry. In uh, chapter 1, we had his genealogy, and from his genealogy, we saw at least in the first two parts, if you remember, Matthew brings the genealogy of Christ in three sections of 14 names each, and in the first two uh, are kings. They're kings of Judah, starting, well, starts with Abraham, but very soon we're off into the realm of kings. And uh, the kings of Judah are in view because Christ is from the tribe of Judah, and all of those kings, well, they fail, every one of them, even the greatest of them, who is David, it it fails miserably. That's actually pointed out. Matthew makes the point of saying that that, uh, Solomon was born, uh, not Solomon, sorry, but that uh, through Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah, meaning uh, where the next one comes from, uh, comes from David, is the fact that uh, in that line there was an adultery committed by David. Then you have Herod the king in chapter 2. Herod's an awful man. Not much is said about him in in Matthew's gospel. We know more about him in history. But we don't have to know much about him from Matthew because Herod is an awful man who 
wants to kill a child king. He doesn't even know who he is. But presumably that um, he thinks that this child that was spoken to him by the Magi prophesied uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures that he wants to kill him. And this shows in just a few lines we see the paranoia and evil of Herod who wants to protect his power. The Pharisees and Sadducees come up next, as we're looking at today. Although we're not going to look at the origin today of the Pharisees and Sadducees. We'll, we, we should do that a bit coming up so that we all know where they come from. Uh, but these are not kings. They don't have a kingdom because Israel is under the rule of Rome. But uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees are the leaders in Israel. And uh, the Romans gave them a bit of leeway. As long as they did what the Romans wanted them to do, uh, they were allowed to run the place, pretty much. And so they're the leaders in Israel, and those are the Pharisees and Sadducees. We see them all through, in all four Gospels, they're displayed to us in all their terrible glory. And then there's the kingdom of heaven. In the midst of this kingdom of Israel, kingdom with all their kings of Judah, all failures, uh, the kingdom of Herod, which is really the kingdom of Rome, and uh, the kingdom or the rulership of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the scribes also involved in that or part of that. Uh, and then these are all right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel in left in contrast to the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of Judah is a failure. Herod's a failure. The Sanhedrin, which is the ruling body, a uh, ruling body of 70 uh, in the um, uh, in Israel were all failures. Those It's made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. And they're all failures for the same reason. And their reason for being a failure is, you know, say, well, they're sinners. And that's true. But in the, in their, the aspect of what they do, um, anybody who gains power and wealth in any kingdom seeks to protect it. It's very, very few who rise up the ladder in any kingdom or in any organization even, uh, who gain power, who actually uh, do not become corrupted by it. Our founding fathers knew this. They, they wrote extensively about it. Uh, and, uh, you know, power corrupts. They knew this. And it, it has. We, we see it in our own world, in our own kingdom. It just happens all the time. From the beginning, it has happened and this is because of the fall of man. Uh, in that power structure or in the structure of those who are in authority uh, who gain position, power, wealth, and influence. And they're all tied together. So, of course, you're not going to have much power if you don't have a lot of wealth. You're not going to have a lot of either of those if you don't have a lot of influence. And influence means that you're able to get things done, uh, to, to make connections. Uh, you know, the, the little bit I know, very little, and I don't want to know any more about how Washington, D.C. works, but I know influence is a great thing there if you're going to maintain. If you get in the club, so to speak, in, in our capital, um, if you can get in there, you can stay there. But getting into the club is the problem, that people will beg, borrow, steal, sell their mother, uh, to get into that club and to remain there. <clears throat> now, as the question I have at the bottom here is, 
you know, is it attained, you know, and that means by us, are we going to strive to attain it or are we going to defer to God about it? So, meaning that power is his, wealth is his, influence is his. And I really mean to discern this or differentiate it from the fact that it's not going to him, it's not him giving it to me and then it's mine. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's not God saying, all right, here's my power, now it's your power. We don't really read of that kind of thing in the scripture. It's always his. And so we use phrases like it's his that flows through us or it's his that is, um, you know, by, by means of uh, fellowship. So we use a word like that in which we're with God in the method of using power, wealth, and influence. So is it <clears throat> for you now, and this is for, you know, the application to any one of us, is it attained by us? Now, when I speak of power, I mean your ability on a daily basis to do what you do. Everything takes power. So when you're dealing with people, your conversations with people, if you're a husband who needs to love his wife, you know, if, if you're a Christian husband and you're, you're sold, to, sold out, you know the scripture says love your wife as Christ loves the church, so you're going to set to do that. But how are you going to do that? Where's your power going to come from? If you're a wife, you know that you have to submit in all things. Submit in all things. <laughs> I know for many wives, they're like, well, and it's not modern, of course. But scripture often isn't modern. But anyway, how am I going to do that? You know, it's one thing to say, well, I agree with that. How am I in practice going to actually do that on a daily basis? When it comes to wealth, you know, is, is it how much I have in the bank? Is it I look at my savings account and say, look, I'm secure. I have security. I have enough money. Or is my wealth and really come from another place? And how am I to, how am I to spend that wealth? I mean, if the wealth that we'll see is come, that comes from God, you know, is, is how do I spend it? How do I use it? And therefore, in practice every single day, how do I gain or use the power of God, the wealth of God, and influence is truly networking. You know, it's networking and how you deal with others, how you influence others. Do you influence others to your own benefit? So when you're dealing with uh, people at work or people in your family or people anywhere, uh, how do you, people in your church, are, are you seeking after what they can give you? Are you seeking after, you know, influence to them in a kind of selfish, in a selfish way? And we'll see that that is exactly not the opposite, is the opposite of what God's influence is. God never seeks for himself. I mean, he does, he's, he's glorified, but he doesn't need us to glorify him. He, he didn't create the human race to say, oh, please worship me. You know, I'm, in, I'm so lonely up here in heaven with just the Son and the Holy Spirit. We've been forever together. I just need more creatures to worship me. And God is trying so very hard. To take, and, and I'm just I'm focusing on these because I'm focusing on um, 
you know, the kingdom influence. I'm, I'm focusing today on what kingdoms are and what they do. And that's it right there. And those things, are, these three things are very much spoken of in the scripture. They're very, very prevalent. And they're to be in us. So are we trying to attain them for ourselves, or are we just basically deferring to God? That's what I mean here, is that power's not mine, it's His. And basically, to me, it's on loan. It's never mine. And how do I, therefore, have it? How do I express it? How do I express wealth so that I'm not entrapped in this world that is so full of materialism? That I'm actually very free from it. And, and, and again, influence as well. In the kingdom of heaven, all three of these are deferred to God. By everybody. Now, picture eternity. We're all in eternity. Right? Here's the rough. Here you are. You're in the New Jerusalem in all of eternity. It's finally all over. Thank God it's over, right? Where's power? It's in him. In fact, in Revelation, it says that in eternity, there isn't even a son, meaning S-U-N. There isn't a son. That Christ himself, the son, S-O-N, is actually the light of the whole eternity. And the son is our source of power here on earth. Without it, there's nothing. And yet there is not one in heaven. Because it's not needed. So when we're in heaven, there's power. We say, well, where's the power? Well, it's him. He's the power. We're here by the grace of God. Where's the wealth? <laughs> He's got it all. And it's true communism, and not communism, but socialism or whatever ism you want to, in heaven. Right? There, there's no capitalism there. It's not necessary. In a fallen world, it's quite necessary. That's not my, to- that's not my topic. What about influence? Who's the influence up here in heaven? Look, same place. It's the same source. It's always Him. And yet, here on earth, we think to ourselves, well, God's going to give me power, and then it's mine to use. And, and in the church, people, uh, they, they think to themselves, well, you know, I, now I have power. I can establish my own power. I can establish my own, you know, I have some great gift. As in, um, you know, those who believe that they can heal people or they have the power of miracles or people who think they're apostles now. And they're like God had given me some special gift and now I get to go use it on my own. As if that is ever the case. It's always God's and never ours. And that has always been a point of confusion for me and all through years in the past, which, you know. I know you're all marveling. Joe, you were confused at some point? Yeah. Like a lot about a lot of things. Uh, you know, I wasn't really ready to admit it, but I was. Where does it come from? You know, how is this? Well, it's not mine, but it's God's. Well, how in the world does that even work? And here's, you know, this for, I, for all Christians everywhere of all time, God says, you know, I'm not really going to explain the ins and outs of how this all works. You just have to follow me. And when you follow me, you'll see it. It's like love. Truly, the influence that is 
in the kingdom of heaven is agape love. That's my influence to others. And man, what an influence it is. But it's nothing like what the world has. And that influence, I know nothing about agape love if I don't follow the Lord and try to love as he tells me to. To be kind. To be gracious. To be giving. To not consider myself. To not be arrogant. To not brag. Not boast. To consider all things. To forgive all things. And to seek the benefit of that other, truly, and and not have any eyes on myself at all, unless I attempt that. I know nothing about the love of God. And that is your influence. Same with power, same with wealth. It's all in him. And if I don't seek them in him, I'll know nothing about them. Look at Matthew 3, 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. As, uh, Jesus calls them the same phrase. <laughs> They're cousins, you know, maybe they, uh, that's how they spoke. You know, but, no, you brood of vipers, meaning a group of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, and that, this is great sarcasm there by John, because John is basically saying, did you actually read the prophets? You know, and that's where the warning is. The warning is by the prophets. The Pharisees and Sadducees know the prophets very well, but have they really listened? Therefore, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you came here for baptism... John's baptism is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If you're going to repent, he says, bear fruit. In other words, there's a false repentance. But we've looked at what repentance is. The Greek word metanoia means to change course. It means to turn to God from a way or a path that you were not turned to God. To turn to him. But notice that there's fruit in keeping with repentance And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. In other words, just because we're Jews. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. In other words, this you being a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, uh, means as much as being a rock when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. And then he says something incredible here. He says in verse 10, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This axe already laid at the root of the trees means the removal of a tree, right? If the axe is at the roots, it's not at a branch. If the axe is at a branch, you're pruning. This is not pruning. This is destruction, And then the burning of the tree, it's thrown into the fire, is a natural extension of the metaphor. Every time that anyone removed branches from a vine or cut down a tree, it was thrown into the fire. You didn't keep a dead tree lying around. And so we're not necessarily speaking here of judgment. However, he says fire, and fire is often an Old Testament metaphor for judgment, which is used in Matthew and several other cases as a metaphor for judgment. So, this repentance is to bear fruit. Now, if you're, now, we have an issue here already at the start. Is that if you're an unbeliever and your tree's cut down, 
Well, you are headed to the lake of fire. Uh, one of the, uh, I saw today a video of a volcano erupting in Iceland. In Iceland, they're constantly, there's a couple of volcanoes up there or maybe a bunch more. I don't know a whole lot about it, but they're erupting all the time. Very, you know, slowly bubbling cauldron of lava. And I had this passage in mind because I've been working on it. And, you know, when I saw that, I was like, that's the description. That's the metaphor that God uses for the lake of fire, this molten lava. Imagine the pain, the awfulness of it, the death of it. And if you're an unbeliever, that's the end. It's something I hardly ever want to think about, but it is the end. And it's a terrible end for them. But what about the believer? The believer that doesn't bear fruit. The same metaphor is used. But we can't say we have to think intelligently here and not say that, well, uh, if a believer doesn't bear fruit, he's cast in the lake of fire, i.e. he loses his salvation. But that's not true. The scripture bears the truth of the fact that we have eternal security. And therefore, having eternal security as a believer, what does it mean to be cut down? Well, it means not to truly live. And I would defer to James chapter 2, where faith without works is dead. You know, faith without works is a life that is really not lived. Christ came to give us life and that abundantly in John 10. And we are to live an abundant life. And that's what Christ, as Matthew continues, our first discourse in Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount, famously called that from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And uh, in that, the Lord is going to describe what life is for those who are members of the kingdom of God. But trees do not, who do not bear good fruit are cut down. And that's the point. Now, we will apply this to the unbeliever, and I think we've said enough on that for us because who I teach are believers, and uh, we'll just deal with us. So in Psalm 74, first, we have a lament over the invasion of Babylon. Real quickly here, we want to see that this cutting down applies to Israel, but it also applies to all the Gentile nations. So first, we're looking at nations before we look at individuals. In Psalm 74, um, over there in the corner, in small type, Psalm 74, 5 says, It seems as if one had lifted up his axe in a forest of trees. And that is the imagery of, say, God with his axe going into a forest and he cuts down every tree. And it's a picture of Babylon invading Israel. And he destroyed the place. And yet this would happen again, as we'll see in Matthew, that this destruction is going to come again in Israel after the time of of Jesus, after his death and resurrection. And it becomes, therefore, a picture of the final destruction of all human kingdoms. In Isaiah 10, 10, 33 and 34, is the destruction of Assyria. Behold, the Lord will lop off the boughs with a terrible crash. Those also who who are tall in stature will be cut down. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe. And here, all this wonderful imagery, not so wonderful for Assyria, but it it happened, right? Assyria, it's not there anymore. There's no kingdom of Assyria. There's no capital of Nineveh. It's all gone. And why is it gone? is because 
they did not give power, wealth, and influence to the Lord. We didn't expect them to, right? What the one nation that we did expect to do that, who fills up the whole Old Testament from Exodus to Malachi, is Israel. But they didn't either. Israel, God picked, God elected. Israel becomes a picture of all the people of the earth, really. Israel becomes a picture of all the nations of the earth. God picked one nation and says, this is the channel I want you to watch. Like on you, If you have cable, you have 500 channels of which you watch two. <laughs> you, they're all a waste of time, but yet they force you to have them. Uh, there's a lot of channels out there. All the channels, of, uh, what I mean by that is all the kingdoms of history. You could study Egypt, Babylon, Greece, Rome. You could study them all. You could study all the littler kingdoms. And you would find the same thing. That all of them, as they age, they get farther and farther away from anything that they've given to God. Same with our nation. We were one nation under God, right? Our founding fathers, many of them very Christian. But the principles that we built this nation on were very Christian. Which is individual rights of mankind. That's a Christian idea. That uh, and, and you know that every man, every person, man, woman has a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's a Christian idea. But yet, we've, with time, we've gotten away from it. And believe it, I, I, I pause there because I know a lot of people will say, well, we can get it back. It, just, it never happens. But, yeah, it could happen. This never happened in all of history. That Once this decline happens, we don't go back up. But that's okay. Look, all nations have to be destroyed. All of them. There isn't going to be one nation on planet Earth, one kingdom who is going to do what the one true kingdom can. Egypt, in Ezekiel 31, Egypt is chopped. I'm not using this imagery. Ezekiel does. Egypt is cut down. And Babylon is cut down. But it's not just them, right? It's all of them. And Daniel 4.14, Babylon is cut down. And then comes the individual. Just like I said at the beginning, in Proverbs, the one who controls his soul is the same as someone who can control a nation. You know, it's like someone who can overwhelm or conquer a nation. If you can conquer you, God says you're better and more mighty than a conquering nation. Which shows us how hard it is for us to control ourselves. Try and do it without God. Pointless, pointless exercise. Look at Matthew 7.15. We're all designed to bear fruit. So Jesus says, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7.15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They're liars. That's why they're false. He's going to say the same thing to us in the Gospel of Matthew to beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I think in that passage he just says Pharisees. Beware of the teaching of the Pharisees. Beware of false prophets. In other words, God has allowed tons of lies to exist on the earth. You will know them by their fruits. So God says to us, be patient. You'll know them. 
I'm not going to leave you in the dark, but I am not going to take away lies from planet Earth. There will be plenty of them. You will know them by their fruits. So you and I have to be discerning. Right? You and I have to be discerning. We can't just believe everything that we hear. No matter who it is. If someone's on YouTube who says, I'm a, I'm a sound Christian person and I'm going to teach you truth. There's one truth and it's here. And if what that person says is not backed up by here, then, and then it's false. And the problem is, with American especially, Western, same in Europe, the whole Christian church has gotten away from the knowledge that is in this book. I mean, how many people are actually reading and learning the Word of God on a consistent basis? And I can't do it for you. You have to learn the Word of God for yourself. I teach it, but at four hours a week. And people who are members of this church don't listen to all four hours. So if you're only listening to a teaching for an hour a week... If that, and you're not and you're not studying this on your own, you could be listening to other teachers for all I care. I, I don't care. Other pastors have been mad about that. I, I just want you to learn. But if you don't know what's in here, how are you to defeat the lies? And this is it's multiple times in the scripture that there is falsehood out there, false prophets, false teachers. And God has given us these letters. These documents for us to know. And you have to know them. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every tree, every good tree bears good fruit. Every bad tree bears bad fruit. And a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. I love how simple and repetitive he is. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. So you see, this is to individuals. It's not a nation here, but it is, again, the image of a tree is used. And that image here is an individual. In this case, it's false teachers. Generally, these false teachers are going to be unbelievers. Um, But... You know, there could be a believer who's out there trying to get influence, especially in our age where you have the Internet and you can get out there and try to influence people. Uh, And as you try to, I think believers can do this too. Of course, they're not going to be, any believer, even if they are telling lies, uh, are not going to lose their salvation. We are eternally secure. But what does it mean for a believer to have his tree cut down? That means his life is, might as well be death. That person's life is not living. They're existing. Which, in the West, in America, we're so comfortable here. There's so much prosperity. Still, even so, with the price of gas and and, uh, inflation, there's still a ton of prosperity. We Christians can get by very comfortably and be worldly. Now, if you're a Christian in China, Iran, say you're a Christian in North Korea, you know, if you're going to be Christian, and outwardly so, you would have to be so dedicated because your life is in danger all the time. But, you know, God doesn't make it that way in the majority of the world. Um, 
and especially in the West, you can be very comfortably a carnal Christian. But you don't know the Word of God. You're not learning the Word of God on a consistent basis. And therefore, all of these things that we're talking about, I mean, you know, they kind of go over the head in one ear and out the other if you do listen. And you can get by comfortably. Remember, we're all going to be judged on what we've done. Now, I can piggyback, oh, I hate that term. I don't know why I said that. But I can tangentialize, which is not a word, from this good and bad. You know, that simple language he uses, and Paul uses the same language when he talks about our judgment at the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5. He says that we're going to all, all of us, stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be judged on what we've done, whether good or bad. That's the distinction. And that good or bad here is just like a tree. And all of us are going to be judged for it. And every believer should know that. Every person. So, the fruit of power, wealth, and influence must be God's, not our own. The fruits of power. I can try and attain my own power. It cannot be. It's a worthless expedition. You're on a journey to nowhere. I just learned yesterday that the talking the singer from the Talking Heads is from Rhode Island. I didn't know that. Um, but great song, right? We're on a road to nowhere. I love that song. But he it, it, it is actually talking about uh, modern modern world. Uh, but you know, and a, for a believer who thinks that they can attain their own power and influence, you know, I'm going to influence people to get what I want. I'm going to influence my customers or I'm going to influence the boss or I'm going to influence my neighbors in, in a way that they're going to think highly of me. And therefore, I'm going to get what I want. I want to impress them in a certain way. Rather than deferring to God. And by deferring to God in my conversation with others, I am using, instead of the influence of my own intellect and what I think I can get from them, I'm using His love. Agape love says, look, I'm going to look to you. What do you need to get closer to God or to understand God, to understand his word? What's the right thing to do here as a member of the kingdom of heaven? How do I converse with someone? Anyone. And by knowing, by keeping that, you see, what has happened also in American Christianity is that there's the church life and then there's the normal life. And they're two separate lives. That that should never, ever be. Ever. We do all things as unto the Lord. Church, Christianity, the Lord, His Word, His truth need to pervade everything that I do. Every conversation I have. All the kingdoms of the earth have failed to defer to God's power, wealth, and influence. Israel did the same. All those kings that are in Jesus' genealogy, even David, sought his own power, his own wealth, and his own influence. He didn't, David didn't do it all the time, but he eventually fell into it. And he paid dearly for it. 
his son Solomon sold his, sold his whole life into it. Solomon went for it. <laughs> he threw himself into it. Away from God and into his own life. We were never designed to live that way. Isn't that funny? I mean, what is heaven? Oh, we were all created to bask in the beauty of God's kingdom. Right? right from the Garden of Eden. We were, what were we to do there? Exist with him. Respond to him. Love him as he loved us. And here on earth, because we're in this fallen world and these fallen bodies, we think that we have to attain it. And we don't attain it. It's given to us by grace. Every person must bear fruit. The fruit of power, wealth, and influence. The power, now to get a little more specific here, the power is, by Scripture, uh, the gospel. There's power in the gospel. The gospel is more than John 3.16. The word gospel, euangelion, in the Greek, means good news. And it's everything that Christ did and is and is now at the right hand of God. It's all good news. We put our faith in it all. So the gospel is the power of God to all the saved. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in Ephesians 3.16, 5.18, the Word of God. I have these passages in my notes. We'll return to a couple of them. And let's see, when do we get to the Pharisees here? Yeah, let's, um, well, you know what? I'm going to skip that. We'll stay in Matthew. The Spirit, the Word, the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. That's Ephesians, uh, sorry, uh, Hebrews 4.12. Uh Power is perfected in weakness, as Paul said when he talks about his thorn in the flesh in Second Corinthians chapter 12. God said this to him. I prayed and prayed and prayed, Lord, take this thorn out of my flesh because it's really making things hard for me. And God said, no, power is perfected in weakness. Why is that? Because Paul, even the great apostle Paul would have pursued a path of personal power, his own power, um, from his own ability. Paul is a smart, strong, willful man. He's a very powerful leader. He's naturally this way. I love how in the scripture they contrast Paul with Timothy because Timothy is more, you know, Paul behaves like a firstborn child and Timothy behaves like the youngest. I know this. I'm the youngest of five. And I have a personality that goes with it. And uh, you know, I've learned this over the years. I'm, you know, I, I want to be that firstborn A-type go-getter. They're very attractive to me. But um, that ain't going to happen. I mean, I'm 57. If it hasn't happened by now, it's not going to happen. You've got to be who you are. It doesn't mean that you don't pursue other, you know, the, the part of you that's the weak part of you. But, you know, with the youngest, you wait for things to come to you. The oldest is the one who's a go-getter. My oldest brother and, my brother and sister, they're ten months apart. We've got Catholic twins, we call them, right? 
Firstborn is my sister Eileen, and then Michael, my the secondborn. They're only ten months apart. And uh, yeah, they're go-getters. They really are. They are A-type personality. And down the line to me, and I'm just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I've always been that way. You know, maybe that's why we have such a tiny church. I'm just like, whatever, you know. But um, you know, it's you are what you are, and it doesn't mean that you have, you know, because your personality type is a certain type. It doesn't mean it's wrong. Right? Depending on what culture you're in, some think, well, that's the right personality, and that's the wrong one. There's no such thing. Where do you read that in the Word of God? I love the fact that there are 12 disciples or apostles in the Word of God. They are as different as night and day between all of them. And the Apostle Paul, getting back to my point, was a go-getter. And God put a thorn in his flesh. So we couldn't go get on his own. In other words, he had to defer to God. And God said this to him. Power. Notice the words. 2 Corinthians 12.9 Power is perfected in weakness. See, in my weakness, I have to say, Lord, power is yours. Wisdom is yours. And you have to give it to me. And he gives it to me, gives it to us. And from that, and it's always his, from that, I channel power. It's marvelous. You'll probably never get proud. I shouldn't say never. But, you know, I, I, for the most part, I, I'm going to be like, that. that's the Lord. Someone says, wow, that was really smart what you did there. Wow, you're awesome. Say, no, I'm not. The Lord's awesome. You just heard the Lord. I'm I'm a, I'm a vessel. Isn't that exactly how he describes us? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we are earthen vessels from which within the power of God comes. It's not me. But I have learned to let God work through me. In me. I'm in partnership with him. And that, my friends, is the kingdom of heaven. Now, who of us does it naturally? Well, first, before I get to that, your power is the gospel, the spirit, the word, dependence on God, and your new life. And I'm taking all these from Scripture. I was going to turn to them, but with time affords, we can't do it. So, uh, they're in my notes. New life is the power of resurrection. Ephesians 1.18, uh, Romans 6.4, and uh, I have another one in here. Where am I? Yeah, Philippians 3.10. We, because, you see, Jesus, and this gets back to Matthew 1, is born of a virgin. So this virgin birth, which is so funny how we've all, everybody in the West, oh yeah, born of a virgin. We just celebrated it, right? You know, we... We even with Maggie, I watched Charlie Brown Christmas for the first time in a lot of years. And at the end of Charlie Brown Christmas, Linus gets up there and gives the gospel. It's beautiful. He speaks Luke chapter 2 you know, with his blanket and everything. Talk about a personality. Right? And, uh, you know, it's, but all of it, everybody's become so familiar with it. But, you know, born of a virgin. That's an incredible story. But he's an incredible man. And as an inc- and born of a virgin, mean, not really in the line of David, though of the line of David, 
Jesus is a new Adam. And that's how the scripture describes him. A new Adam. And what does that mean? A new birth. It's a completely new birth. And because he died for us, we're given that new birth. And so Romans 6, 4 would say, walk in newness of life. Walk in newness of life. In your new birth, walk in it. Live in it. And again, and that means in everything that you do. What does the new life do, for instance, when someone sins against them? The new life forgives. The old life seeks vengeance. What does the new life do when it's hard to submit to authority? The new life says, that authority is from God. So I submit to it. I don't like it. My flesh definitely hates it. But I'm going to do it. Because that's the new life. When I'm tempted to some kind of sin, sexual sin, or some addiction, I say, well, it's a very tempting thing if I've developed an addiction to something, but I must say no rather than give in because that's the new life. The old life just gives in and makes excuses. The new life says, no, by the power of God, I will not give in. And I'm not saying you won't give in, (laughs) but you may not. If you, if you never stand against that which you should stand against by knowing who you are, then you will never have a chance against it. God says that we can overcome all things. That's the new life. And then the influence, the last one, the influence is agape love. We must love. Not to gain from others. We're not looking to get from others. What can I get from you? <laughs> and in that, love is patient. Boy, that sounds real familiar. That almost rolled off the tongue because that's the scripture, right? Love is patient because people are not going to respond to love immediately. But that's the new nature. So the fruit of repentance means no one has it at first. Nobody. That's why you have to repent. If if you didn't have to repent, it means you would naturally have it. But you don't naturally have it. Repent means to turn to God. And we believe the gospel, we repented. We repented from not believing in Christ to believing in Christ. We repented from not thinking we were sinners in need of a Savior to thinking we were sinners, knowing we were sinners in need of a Savior and that Christ was the only Savior. But then afterwards, as believers, we're repenting of a lot of things as we change our system of thinking into conformity with Christ. And then, therefore, also, repentance means that God is patient. So weakness becomes power. Poverty in the soul becomes the riches of Christ. Eyes on self becomes agape love towards others. And again, those three things I've just reiterated. Power. I am weak. But weak becomes strong when I defer to God. Poverty of soul, meaning I see myself in a low, as such a low image. I mean, heck, if any human being is honest with themselves, we should all be depressed. We know who we are. We know what we're supposed to be. And we don't live up to it. All of us should be depressed. 
But poverty of soul becomes riches in Christ. It's the first line in the Sermon on the Mount. is blessed are the poor in spirit. And it's a direct line against, as Matthew has set us up, with Herod, with the Pharisees. Herod is, thinks he's not poor. The Pharisees don't think they're poor. But the people that Jesus went to, he didn't go to them, did he? Who did Jesus go to in the Gospels? He went directly to the common people, to the poor and to the oppressed. So, um, without running out of time, I thought I'd have plenty of time for this, but whatever. It always happens to me. The Pharisees, and I'll start this tomorrow. I'll start with this. The Pharisees are shown in the Gospel of Matthew in light of what they do. And there's an application in each one of them to what we should do. And it's, it's not just saying, well, just don't be a Pharisee. You know, do the opposite. When you look at them in terms of, you know, as John said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. When we look at the Pharisees and Sadducees, scribes are thrown in there too. Chief priests is the fourth category. And they're all depicted in a way that is the power and... Let me go back to it here, the initial slide. This power, wealth, and influence they attain, and then they try to keep it. And the way to keep it is an evil... And it always is this. It's some evil way in which you try to attain... Once you've attained it, then you have to keep it. Because once you have it in this world, there are others who are always trying to get it. And if you have it, they have to get it from you. Power and wealth is a limited quantity. There isn't enough of it to go around for everybody. Right? You understand. There isn't enough power to go around for everybody to have power. You can't have all chiefs and no Indians. Can you even say that phrase anymore? Probably not. Not uh, not politically correct. Um, you can't. It, it doesn't exist. And yet God says of us, you're all rulers in heaven. As, as, you know, as his kingdom is not of this world. It's nothing like it. Nothing. There's no place in the kingdom of heaven for Herod. There's no place in the kingdom of heaven. I'm meaning that. Herod can't apply for kingship in the kingdom of heaven. He can't be a king there. The Pharisees and Sadducees can't rule in the kingdom of heaven. There's no place for them. And hence, as we'll see in Matthew's gospel, they seek to destroy it. Because if they can't destroy it, they know somewhere in the core of themselves that the kingdom of heaven is going to destroy them. So they try to stop it. There's a marvelous passage at the end of Matthew where they actually try to stop the kingdom of heaven from coming. And it's just so laughable. Basically, they try and stop the resurrection. Imagine, by your back door, back room, dealings, wheelings and dealings, you're going to stop the resurrection of the Messiah. They thought that they could. It's so laughable. But it's what 
people who attain power and wealth seek to do. So when we look at them, we see through that uh, a great light is shined upon the life that we have in the kingdom of heaven. And we'll pick up there tomorrow. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and your grace and your mercy. Thank you for all things through Christ our Lord, which are magnificent and marvelous. Thank you, Father, for what you have done and continue to do through him. And may we all, as subjects to you in your kingdom, learn how to live. And that is truly it. It's not how much we know, it's how much we live. And, of course, we need to know to live. So we ask, Father, that you give us knowledge and also wisdom to live that knowledge. And we ask, it in Christ, ask this in Christ's name. Amen.